All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. We are glad that everyone's uh, here today. We have a large uh, in-person audience. Be sure to sign up early so you can come to our, our uh, podcast, our webinar, I guess, and ask the questions of our guests. We are honored uh, to be here and uh, be with Amanda Kelly, aka Behavior Babe today. I will introduce uh, Behavior Babe in a second and let Amanda Dr. Kelly, speak and tell who she is, and then we'll get right to it. But before that, Joe gets the boring part. Joe. Boring Joe, that's what I'm known for. All right, like Justin said, uh, if you signed up early and you're able to catch this live, that's great because this is really question-driven by the audience, which differentiates it from lots of other podcasts. Uh, so if you would like to ask questions, there's a there's a little Q&A function down at the bottom. Please use that to make sure that your questions get asked. If you throw it in the chat, there's a high likelihood that we're going to miss that. Uh, if you're listening to this wherever you stream your podcast, sorry, you missed your chance to ask questions. Sign up and come to a live one so you can make sure that your questions get asked. Uh, if you want CEUs for this or any rants, you can purchase and download your certificate at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Just keep track of the opening and closing words because you will be asked for those to make sure that you get your certificate. Today's opening word is public. 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 Uh, and then I, the only boring part Joe missed is when you purchase them, you can purchase this one CEU, but Instead, you can become a subscriber, a member of our APF library, CU library, for a cheaper rate. And therefore, you can not only hear Amanda, you can see Amanda's talk uh, that she gave for our conference. And you can see talks by Greg Hanley and Pat Fryman, Shala Ali. So to me, it just makes more sense to, you know, just become a member and uh, get your CUs that way. So. I don't think Amanda really needs uh, much of an introduction. I think most people know who she is. She's a champion of our science. She's a champion of applied behavior analysis. She's a champion for individuals diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and their families. But I always like saying how I met Amanda, um, just to put it in context of how we got here. Uh, it was at an ABA conference, I believe in Chicago, though I could be wrong. Um, where I was presenting a talk on concerns I had with the RBT uh, based off a paper that my colleagues and I wrote. And I think Amanda was either in the first row or second row uh, on my right. And I knew who she was, and I think she knew who I was, um, but we never really met each other. And I was like, oh, that's cool, behavior babes here. This should be interesting how it goes. And I gave a fiery talk about our concerns I remember afterwards walking off the stage and Tom said, Tom Zane said, what did you eat for breakfast today? Or something like that, because I was, I was fiery. And Amanda comes up afterwards and says uh, some, some nice compliment and says, I would love just to talk to you later and get drinks. And I'm like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Behavior babe's not happy with me here. 
And I said, sure. And we got uh, some drinks and talked for, for a couple hours, I believe, about everything. And then I remember a week later, someone was complaining about the paper on social media. And Amanda wrote and said, no, he's very reasonable. There's reasons why he's doing it. I just talked to him and he'll gladly talk to you. And from there, Amanda and I met at conferences all the time. We talk uh, all the time. And the best thing that's happened is that you, Amanda, are you and I have gone into the endeavor of the promoting ABA SIG as part of CASP, where we get to promote and quality ABA. And so that's my story of Amanda, but Amanda, you can introduce yourself uh, for people that might uh, not know you or anything that I missed uh, that I'm wrong about. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong about any of those things. And I just wanna thank you and Joe for having me here today and for everybody who's tuning in, hanging out, listening live or listening to the recording. I like to start with how I got into the autism industry, the field. It was never an industry to me. Um, it's incredible how things have evolved over time. And, you know, applied behavior analysis is something that's so much more than an autism treatment or a treatment for, for behaviors, if you will. Um, we are looking at supporting individuals uh, with all sorts of different needs. And I really appreciated um, although my first exposure was with a child with autism, when I moved to Massachusetts and started pursuing my degrees and my certification uh, coursework, um, one of my colleagues was a behavior analyst working at the MSPCA. Another one of my colleagues was working in a hospital setting. And as luck would have it, I got called to serve on a federal jury the first week of my master's. And I remember being really worried, like, how am I going to work on operational definitions. I can't talk about a court case and I'm not at work right now. And I distinctly remember one of my mentors, Dr. Susan Ainsley saying to me, well, you have the pleasure of operationally defining guilt and innocence and embarrassment because these were the kinds of things that we would be talking about as jurors. And what, what I'm doing and trying to share with you here is talking about those multiple exemplars, if you will. And having that originally in the initial parts of my training, always made me so excited for behavior analysis. And I wanted to share everything I learned with everybody all the time. And as Justin mentioned, I can talk. And so we can do that for hours and hours and hours on, on end. Um, but really it was a big part of why I wanted to start the website, which originally was called abama.webs.com because you know, I didn't know anything about marketing. I was a behavior analyst. I was a teacher. It stood for applied behavior analysis in Massachusetts.webs because it was free. Um, Obama, when the president was Obama, might have been a coincidental accident that drove some traffic to my site. But about a year later, as we were looking at social media, really growing Twitter, going to conferences and sharing the information, uh, everybody needed a screen name and a handle. So what started as me meeting a child in my undergraduate degree with autism uh, turned out to be 11 years in Massachusetts ended up being a part of the story of creating Behavior Babe. And after passing and supporting autism insurance and licensure for behavior analysts in Massachusetts, I decided I was gonna go take the world's longest vacation and go to Hawaii um, because I had missed so many vacations in grad school. Everybody who's there or been there can recall what you sacrificed to get, get the grades, get the things done that we need to get done. Um, and I laughed because it was definitely not a vacation. It was seven years of busting butt, hauling tail and trying to get what I knew as quality services and access to these services, something that, um, that was pretty easily 
uh, accessible in Massachusetts, I wanted to help make that available for families and individuals in Hawaii. So very fortunate to have met a couple of really incredible handful of game changers, if you will, dream chasers. And um, it was a, a really incredible and powerful experience. And so I enjoyed being able to live surrounded by the ocean, see the rainbows, see the turtles, uh, work with the community. Um, I'm still currently uh, on the board of the Hawaii Disability Rights. And I think being a volunteer, being an advocate, being immersed in the community is, is necessary in order to be informed. And recently I've just relocated to Orlando, Florida, which I never expected or thought that I would do, leave Hawaii and come here. But I take some comfort in the fact that I went from the rainbow state to the sunshine state. And I have the ability to impact, I think many more lives, both analysts, technicians, clients, families, policy um, by the work that I'm doing as the chief clinical officer here at Breakthrough Behavior. I mean, there's worse places to take a vacation than Hawaii and Florida, I guess, right? You could have, could have ended up somewhere much less beautiful in terms of what you get to see. Uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Uh, and I think you're with a bunch of like-minded people that get excited about behavior analysis and really geek out about the potential applications of our science across a wide variety of different areas. Uh, but our topic today is advocacy and effective advocacy. And I think it might be beneficial for the people that don't know a lot about it for us to talk about what is advocacy in the context of the discussion we're having today, or what is an advocate, like what, what makes an advocate? So is there something you could speak to about that just to orient the audience to ad what an advocate is and what advocacy is in this context? Yes, I think we could have the discussion like big A, little A of what does advocacy or advocates mean. Um, I think about us all, we are always advocating. We're advocating for what we need to get met. We're advocating if we need some more time off work or if we need more resources or supports for our personal lives. Um, maybe we're advocating within our relationships, our friendships and other things there. When I think about students, when I think about children in particular, oftentimes teachers, they are constant advocates for their students in their classroom or for the paraprofessionals that support students in their classroom. Um, I find parents, parents themselves, they are motivated to get their children what they think their children need. And to be honest, that's been a big part of the public policy advocacy efforts have really been spearheaded by family members who are very compassionate and compelling when they say what they need and what has been so helpful for them or for their children. Um, obviously, I think when we're talking about uh, applied behavior analysis, when we're doing that specifically to autism um, or any group that we're working with, we want to also make space and have place and conversations with individuals who are self-advocates. I mean, I've always been trained and taught that the most important person is the person who you are there to support and help. When I work with families, they say to me, hey, this is a lot of work, or uh, you're asking me to do X, Y, or Z. And I will remind them, uh, I am here to make your life easier and to make your life better, however you define that to be. And if I'm not doing that, then I definitely need you to, to give me feedback and to tell me that. When I think about advocacy with what I would maybe call the big A, um, when I think about it in the realm of public policy, Behavior analysis has a lot to lend itself to, to what we do. We know about shaping and pairing. We know about reinforcement. We know about presenting things in a concise manner. 
Um, sometimes we know about presenting things and we're not very concise because we're super detailed and maybe a little too verbose. Um, I've definitely had some experiences in different states now working at um, and collaborating with um, advocates, lobbyists, community members, um, and the public policy arena. When we are doing things there, I think it's very important to learn how the system works so that you know how to be effective at what you're doing. But the message that I would say to everybody is there's something that any everyone can do. Everyone plays a part. There's nothing... That, that can or should be done alone. If we're truly going to advocate for a group or a subset of individuals, individuals who want to access treatment, for example, then we need to make sure that everybody's involved and that that allows the diversity of thought and the participation in a way that feels very organic and authentic. Yeah, I love how you're breaking that down, Amanda, and just talking of what we can do and what we should all be doing. I mean, I wonder part of the avid, I guess what do you see, take us through what you see the progression of avid, the big A advocacy has been of, in terms of public policy. And, and from that, because I'm really curious of where you think it needs to go. I, I don't think everyone in the audience or who's gonna listen knows the whole history. And that's why I would like you to touch upon that. But really, I'm, I really wanna know where you think it's gonna go. I truly believe in order to know where we're headed, we do need to reflect on where we've been. When we think about access to ABA services, when I think about the first child I met with autism, it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, the parents had uh, a doctor who prescribed the service, You know, said, this is what your child needs. It was West Virginia, pretty rural location. There was no BACB at the time are not yet many behavior analysts who are being certified outside of Florida or a few other states. And yet this family whose child was two, 20, 20 something years ago, was on the path to saying, okay, this is what I've been, it's been prescribed. How do we go ahead and make it happen? And the, the family that I met, uh, the reason why behavior analysis even landed in my world was because I met a family in need who said, we don't care if you're trained. We don't really care about you know, what you think you can do on your own. We're gonna work together. We're gonna learn together. And they actually said, you know, we'll give you a dollar you know, 50, I think it was, or something like that for every book on autism you read to help us understand what we're doing and to help us with our child. So at first I didn't know ABA at all. I also didn't know anything pertained beyond autism. I had no idea it was something that we would maybe um, find applicable in our own lives or with older individuals. So I just want to share with everybody, it's always an information gathering process. I don't know anybody who was born being like, yeah, that's science of behavior change. It's my jam. Um, we might have been behaving in ways that when we found the science of behavior analysis, it really got us excited or gave us a name for what we, what we were kind of good at, maybe, perhaps. Um, I always wanted to be a teacher. I always wanted to be, um, since I was four, in education, and I did. I was pursuing my bachelor's in elementary education when I met this child who I worked with for three years. Now, what we saw was somebody who was, for me, the most impaired individual I had ever met in my experience. And in three years time, and, and much, much uh, progress happened throughout, 
he was fully communicating with his siblings. He was wanting to play with his neighbors. He was able to enter into kindergarten without any support. And I didn't understand how, I was like, what did we just do? How, how was that possible that college students and high school students were figuring this out? So I share that with everybody to, to talk about just personally where I've been, because that experience itself is what motivated me to go seek out behavior analysis. So I had the motivation there. Who else has motivation? These parents right? Parents upon parents upon parents upon parents are saying, how do we get our supports? How do we get help? Surely our insurance will fund it. And that's really the story of, you know, belongs to Lori and Dan Unum of being parents who said, okay, we have this prescription, we have the support. What do you mean we don't have a way to access it? What do you mean families who don't have what we have definitely can't access it? And I think we owe as a profession, as a field, um, a lot of debt and gratitude. And I think that the biggest promoters and disseminators of our field have really been parents who have been compelled by the progress that they've seen, um, or as well as by individuals who themselves have been recipient of services and, and you know, just get to experience lives the way that there, there had been a vision for it that at one point felt like it was not going to happen. When we think about that and we talk about insurance and we talk about having funding on the state and federal levels, the difficult thing about the state initiatives is that it was literally state by state by state by state. Um, from my own personal experiences in Massachusetts, I believe Massachusetts was the 22nd state to pass insurance. Hawaii was the 42nd state. So having lived in a place that was in the first, you know, half or even maybe closer to that first third, and then being in the state that was in the last 10, it was definitely um, a large learning curve and a big, uh, I think a lot was gained from those very diverse experiences. So when we talk about accessing services, some of these barriers and some of the conversations had been applied behavior analysis is experimental or uh, some claims might be, we just don't have enough research yet, or this research is so outdated, or the research is looking at small case, you know, in size samples and not looking at group statistics. And what I experienced over time was essentially some of the same concerns, no matter which state you were in, or even which decade you were having this discussion in, it was a lot of the same conversations. So when people realize, hey, this is what I'm doing in North Dakota, and this is what I'm doing in California, and this is what's happening in Wyoming, um, we developed a, a group of supporters, of fellow advocates out there, mostly parents. Um, many providers are there as well, um, but again, I see mostly the family piece of things. So if anybody doesn't know who Lori and Dan Unum is, I just encourage you to do a quick Google search and uh, your life will be better once, you, once you're familiar with their story and just how much they've helped so many families across the United States and I would say outside of the U.S. This is not a U.S. only um, a initiative, support, or need. This is a global need. Uh, for access to services. And I'm, I'm really grateful that there are people who are working across the world to make access possible. What a wonderful response. Uh, and, and so much in there that we could, it could be a talk or a podcast all on its own. Uh, I think you made a wonderful point that in terms of the little A and the big A, I, I love that description because it really helps you get a grasp for what I can do um, and how I can help. 
uh, and the different levels that you could get involved. And I think it's a wonderful point that parents uh, have been the largest advocates for the most part. And I think I, I agree everyone needs to, to learn about the UNOMs if they haven't. Uh, I'd be surprised if that name isn't a household name if you're in this field at this point. Uh, but it made me think, uh, what are some of the, the qualities or the, or the repertoires that are necessary for you to be an effective advocate, whether it's the big A or the little A, and does that differ if you're going to be a self-advocate or if you're developing self-advocacy skills with someone so they can self-advocate or if you're becoming an advocate uh, because of whatever the reasons might be in that situation? You know, Dr. Pierre Gerhardt, who spoke for the Autism Partnership Foundation and recently just presented to our analysts at Breakthrough Behavior, talks so much and emphasizes so much about choice. So when I'm helping somebody access something in their life or I'm saying that I'm trying to help support them, I really connect to his description and, and I really hone in on that word of choice. We wanna give people the choice, right? To eat too many donuts and take a nap, right? That's a publication out there. You know, we are, we are not, I am not um, advocating for anything other than what I believe will improve people's lives and something that I fully believe should be funded and supported um, and be a shared responsibility of different state and federal resources and supports. When I think about, you know, what are some effective skills or things that you need in your repertoire, I would say you need to be fluent on what you're advocating for, on what you're advocating about. Somebody's going to ask you for the facts, you need to have the facts. Um, again, I'm going to echo some advice that I got from Lori, which is, you know, sometimes people don't want facts. And that's not where you start the conversation. You don't sit down and say, do you know that in uh, 2001, Indiana was the first state to pass autism insurance, which is a true fun fact, um, but not every legislator wants to hear that in particular. And when you think about having an elevator speech, if you will, we talk a lot about that and more uh, looking, I don't know how many times we're all standing in elevators, but the point nowadays, of course, is how quickly can you get that message across to someone who's interested, but perhaps for a short period of time. And when you're testifying, for example, in the Hawaii State Capitol, you have two to four minutes to get your entire piece out. And I distinctly remember one hearing uh, with Representative Gene Ward, where he said to me, so what is, just tell me, what is ABA? And I said, okay, so you take the environment and he goes, so like trees, it's trees and, and grass, the environment, earth. And I was like, okay, wrong words. Okay, okay, I was like, let me try again. And again, the clock is running down. And now I'm very fluent in what I'm talking about, but am I fluent in the language that I need for this current audience, right? Do I have the appropriate information uh, to help me be effective? And we all get really anxious, uh, even those of us who are used to public speaking, and that's gonna be more true when you're on this really time limited um, uh, opportunity that you have to speak. So eventually what I ended up saying to him was, okay, let's take a skill, brushing your teeth. And he goes, okay, I brush my teeth. He's like, multiple times a day, you got me, I'm hooked, I can connect. What about brushing your teeth? And I said, how many steps is brushing your teeth, Representative Ward? And he said, well, uh, you know, you get your toothbrush, turn on the water, you open it, you put it on, you brush, you, you rinse. And he's like, maybe six or seven steps. And I said, for the individuals who I'm supporting, who I'm talking about, who I have experience and history with, that might be 50 steps. 
it might not be five or six or seven steps. And you might need, you know, two months of support as a young child to get the motor and get the steps and the routines down. Your parents might need to do some fidelity checks to make sure you haven't strayed too much. My father being a dental hygienist growing up always made sure my teeth were very clean, no cavities as a child. Um, but at the same time, the individuals that I support and have worked with require many, many, many more opportunities. So I explained to the representative, you can take an everyday skill, it becomes many more steps, needs to be broken down, generally speaking, with more detail and requires more repetitions. That to him is what is ABA. Now, I've also asked families, what is ABA to you? Some of the families that I used to work with uh, 10 years ago, I had an opportunity to visit with when I was back in Massachusetts um, two years ago. And one mom said to me, my son getting in the car, choosing the radio station and the song he wants to listen to, going out to dinner with me without these challenging behaviors and, and drinking water instead of soda. She's like, that's ABA to me. And that brings me back to parents usually being so good and some of the most compelling advocates when we're talking about access to ABA because they connect it to the meaningful daily um, benefits for them, for their child and for their family. Another thing I would say is again, know your audience, you, you wanna be fluent in the topic, but you also wanna research all angles, like find out what and try to predict they're gonna say, oh, it's experimental. Okay, no, wait, I have a list of 300 studies. Okay, oh, you know what? It's, they, they might say it's only for a certain age group. Okay, wait, I'm gonna have this information that I can just hand over to them. So decrease the response effort. The joke that we made in Hawaii was we increased the response effort of about 10 exponentially who were constantly um, seeking out testimony and, and staying abreast of all the changes and communicating with our community. But by doing so, we exponentially decreased the response effort of the participation. Um, and what I want to say is, you know, if you're trying to figure out who, who your allies are or what your community needs, or you want to figure out where do I begin advocating, just look around. There are problems everywhere, right? Like we, there are things to be solved and the opportunities exist all around us. My biggest piece of advice and the thing that has served me the best is volunteering and participating on other boards and organizations that are not behavioralistic. So I know I've already mentioned the Hawaii Disability Rights um, Board. I have found that to be one of the most valuable um, ways to gain information, to connect with the community, um, to be involved in events that, that aren't always politically charged. And what we found too, though, was the executive director of that organization very much has a passion and a heart for helping um, many different disability communities. He also had 24 years experience at the legislature. So if we, if we need to go to the legislature, um, it's really gonna be a little bit more salient if I walk in paired with somebody who has already acquired some stimulus control than if I walk in saying, hey, I care, you don't know me yet, but you should trust me. So it is important to look at some of those systems and your resources that are available. Um, but what I will say is I've seen a lot of people accomplish a ton with very, very little resources. And so that continues to inspire me, even though sometimes my access to reinforcement is quite thin. There's so many beautiful nuggets that you're, you're putting in there, Amanda. And I, I, you know, just listening to you, you say fluent a lot, but I think what you're hinting at or, or what should be really inferred 
is you're using clinical judgment skills and critical thinking skills when you're being an advocate, which is the same as good teaching if you're teaching uh, any child or adolescent or adult, you're really analyzing it. The other thing which got me thinking of a quote is uh, failure to prepare is preparing to fail. And so being an advocate, like being a good behavior analyst, you have to do the work. You just don't go in there uh, willy-nilly, you go and you study what's going on and get all the sides so that you are prepared. And I think that's something that, um, that we have to do a better job of just in general. And, and then the other thing, before I get to the parents part of this, is you know I'm a researcher and a behavior analyst. Uh, Joe's a researcher and a behavior analyst, and we love data, but we have to realize that a large part of society doesn't care about data as much. Uh, they don't care about the psychometric values of certain assessments. They don't care about like that we achieved really good internal uh, control or functional control and control for threats to internal validity. They care about being a person. And so the way that we can interact and make the change is not going and always saying, well, here's the data for it, but it's telling your story. And, and I bring this up Mostly, hopefully, I, I know you know this, Amanda, but for, for a lot of listeners, when I, when I teach master's level students, and Joe does too, I assume a lot of times when these kinds of things come up, whether it's small advocacy with parents or large advocacy, they're like, well, we'll show them this study. Well, we'll show them these studies. And that's not the message that they, some might leave that, but it's not the message that all of them uh, need to hear. So I just love that you, you bring up that story because there could be a softer touch using that clinical judgment in effectively advocating for our consumers of our science. Now you brought parents and I think anyone attending our stuff knows who the UNAMs are because they've been so influential and we had them on. Um, and, and you know, I think, I think people know, I, you don't know who Lori or Dan Unum are, as you said, Google it, uh, they've done so much for our field. But uh, a question that came up from a person who's attending live, is that there's so many people who claim to advocate on behalf of autistic children. Sometimes they contradict each other. Who should we listen to? Well, that is a loaded question. So I'm gonna try to deconstruct it a bit and see if I can target it uh, piece by piece. Simply put, who should we listen to? We should be open to listening to everybody. We should have the ability to discern and discriminate information. And um, sometimes we can do that the same ways that we would search out whether something was scientific or pseudoscientific, right? Does it, does it claim to do something for all or nothing? Is it making these sweeping judgments? Do you see an overnight this? Is there a, a strength in the word? Um, that is used and does it compel or evoke an emotional response and and you know I think that a lot of these are very charged conversations because many of us have very strong opinions and rightfully so because it's a personal matter what you don't have to be a person with autism to care immensely and intensely about people with autism uh, I will also say, you know, I'll echo Stephen Shore, Dr. Stephen Shore's quote, you've met one person with autism, you met one person with autism. How can anybody speak for an entire community uh, would be beyond me. So if somebody was claiming to do that, I would be more skeptical of what they were saying personally, and I would be more hesitant or ask more questions or maybe even uh, kind of hang in the background and observe a bit. 
which Justin, you brought up how you and I met. Uh, I wasn't quite in the front row. Definitely, I remember saying, I'm gonna sit back a little bit. Maybe he won't know I'm here um, because my thought was, let me just observe. Let me just hear what you have to say. I read what you wrote. I had an opinion about it. It was a very strong opinion and it didn't necessarily um, support yours or wasn't in line with your opinion. But using that example of how we met and how we dialogued and how we engaged, it's very easy to walk into conversations with assumptions and biases, even if we try not to. So I would encourage people to, as much as possible, um, label them, tack them for yourself and be aware that they exist. So I know I, I, in my mind, for example, I was like, well, Dr. Justin Leaf, he doesn't live in Hawaii. He has different resources. People can drive into his state. He can raise the bar. Um, those might've been some things going through my head that were influenced from where I was coming from physically, literally where I was coming from. But what we did was we also, I think, created a safe space, not just me, um, but you and your response created that space where we were comfortable and felt safe having a disagreement. And then we found out as we journeyed through the conversation that we didn't disagree on some pretty key points. We actually had some strong connections and places where we were like-minded. That now is the reason why we're friends. It's the reason why we partner together and we do um, you know, different activities from a professional standpoint. And Justin, I don't know if I've ever said this to you, but I like that you don't agree with me. And I like sometimes that you're okay if I don't agree with you. Um, I want diversity of thought around me. So I would encourage people to make sure that we're not always just exposing ourselves to people who agree with what we're saying or who stand where we stand, whether we're talking about autism or politics or any other stance in a social societal uh, matter that we're talking about with injustices and justices. Uh, the talk that I gave at the Autism Partnership really comes from a lot of these experiences of being in uncomfortable situations and learning to be comfortable having conversations. Um, and so I think, you know, who do we listen to? Everybody. Who do we give the majority of our time to? Well, I'm going to tell you a quick story. Um, when I was in my undergrad, when I was working with Johnny, I was assigned a researcher or philosopher to research, and his name is Jerome Bruner. And I really wanted to research B.F. Skinner, but my professor said, no, you're already learning about Skinner on your own job. Uh, you have Jerome Bruner. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Jerome Bruner, but I will tell you, I had a personal interaction with him that makes him memorable to me. So I emailed him, I think right when email was a thing. <laughs> he was at a university, I was at a, I was at a school, so we had email. I think I used my dial-up AOL and I was searching, you know, first time not in a card catalog being like, okay, you can type these words in and it produced his email. And I thought to myself, gosh, this guy, surely he's dead, right? They're all just, these, they're not alive anymore, these philosophers and researchers. And I was wrong. It was him. And I had said to him, this is what I've read about your philosophy and education. I'm, you know, kind of learning myself, but I'm also working with a child and I'm finding these strategies are working really, really well. You know, have you revised your philosophy on education over the years was a question I asked him. And I mean, it was probably one of my first 10 emails I ever received or sent. And he wrote me back and he wrote me back the most authentic response. He said, you should pick an education. He said, first, first off, uh, 
he, he said something to the effect of like, um, you know, disregard everything you think you know about education and educational philosophies. He said, pick them like you would pick a husband. <laughs> that was his language. He said, which one's going to get you through tough times and rough sledding? Basically, which one works? Which one is worth your time? Which one is going to give you the payout and the end? From an ABA standpoint, we understand the matching law. So while I may listen to everybody, I'm going to allocate my energy to where I'm receiving the most reinforcement, where I'm seeing the most bang for my buck, where I'm seeing the most change um, and for people who are wanting that change. Again, just another beautiful, beautiful response to the question, Amanda. You know, I, I, hearing you talk about professional discourse, it reminds me of listening to my mentor, uh, Jim Sherman, who I don't think many know. I wish more people know because he is a god of ABA. That was Mont Wolf's words, not mine. Um, and he used to talk about his days at Washington, where it was him and Todd Risley, who I think most people know, were in a, were in a room, a small room, uh, in a lab room, and they would get in arguments all the time. They would talk about getting in arguments over uh, conceptual issues in, in our very young field at the time, or uh, applied issues in our very young field at the time. And Jim would say they would, they would almost be like, wanted to fight each other. They would do it in nice ways, but then they would go and get a beer with each other and, and work through things. And, and that you can have professional discourse. I think, you know, some pe so many people today don't think that we should be having discourse. No, I think professional discourse is good. I know Joe and I don't agree on everything. Um, and there's times that Joe and I, who are very close, will argue over different ways to, to go. Joe usually wins like 95% of those arguments, uh, but uh, um, maybe less now because I try to argue less with him because I just know I'm gonna lose and I don't like losing, uh, but it's fine to have professional discourse. It's fine to not agree on everything. And I love how you say allocating your time. To me, it's, al it's allocating your time to, yeah, what's gonna be the most effective and really, if I feel if people are doing irreparable harm, I'm not gonna allocate my time uh, to them anymore. I, I think it's a wonderful point that I'm right 95%, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I think it's a wonderful point about the professional discourse. And I think, unfortunately, I don't know what, what's causing it, but I don't think a lot of graduate students are coming into contact with models for professional discourse or practice in professional discourse. So when it's presented to them, it seems like arguing, uh, which isn't necessarily professional discourse. Uh, you can have a disagreement and we can both grow from this. And that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to blindly agree with you. And if I don't agree with you, I wasn't listening to you. Um, listening doesn't mean just blindly agreeing and moving on. Listening is an active role. You're not a passive person when you're listening. Uh, you're doing it for a purpose, like what Amanda said when she was in the second, third, whatever row she was. Um, it was an active experience. It felt uh, like the first row. <laughs> you were just honed in on her. And it, so it seemed like she was in the first row for you. Uh, 
So I, I think it, it'd be very valuable if people could have more experiences with, with seeing professional discourse modeled. It was modeled for me in my master's program at UNT. And I think I learned an awful lot from it. And I think I carried that over. And that's why Justin and I work so well. It's because we can vehemently disagree on something, have a professional discussion about it, walk away, uh, and go grab a drink afterwards. It's not like we're Justin is no longer my friend, no longer my professional colleague. Uh, it can happen that way. So uh, I think that's just a, a wonderful point. And I, I also love the point about if you've met one uh, person with autism, you've met one person with autism. I think it goes for advocates, BCBAs. You've met one BCBA, you've met one BCBA. Uh, we're not all created equal. We have different repertoires. Sure, there's some things that we might have in common, um, but that's just a starting point and education continues after that. Uh, so I, I think it's just such a valuable thing for everyone to think about in terms of the BCBAs that they might encounter. Uh, so I'm curious, with all of your time working as an advocate and, and being an effective advocate, what are some challenges that you've encountered along the way to becoming such an effective advocate? Because I would consider you that. Uh, and are there any things that you would suggest to other people that might encounter those same challenges on their path to being an effective advocate uh, to help them overcome them? I have so many things I want to say. Thank you for that question, Joe. I, I, you mentioned models, you know, and it makes me think a lot about our ethical responsibility to demonstrate and to develop competency in everything we're going to do. There wasn't a lot of models for me on a, on a big A uh, public policy advocacy kind of uh, side. However, the first way that I got um, attached to any of these advocacy and, and legislative efforts was by being a member of my state chapter. So generally speaking, I absolutely support that and in working together and knowing other analysts in your area, knowing other professionals in your area, uniting, not working against each other, having conversations, creating safe spaces where those conversations can occur. I think that's very important. Um, a challenge has been sometimes I have been the face of a lot of the advocacy efforts, even though there may be an army within or beside me. And when things are going really well, sometimes people um, can become very resentful of, wow, it looks like Amanda's getting all of the credit and acclaim for this. You know, other people did stuff too. Um, that's one end of it. On the other end of it, if things are not going well, sometimes people will be like, oh, that's not our opinion. That's Amanda. She's doing that on her own. So sometimes if you are in that position, you become a person of convenience and different parts of conversations, depending on who, uh, you know, you, you have to go through the tough times to get to the, to the success. And if some people want to be there only to celebrate, um, they're not going to be well prepared for the ongoing pieces of advocacy. So, for example, we passed our licensure in, in um, Hawaii for a behavior analyst in 2015. It was a companion to our insurance bill, our, our insurance mandate. The insurance company said they will not provide it without licensed providers. So, okay, we went ahead and we used the Model Licensing Act from the BACB as a guide. We consulted with uh, you know, Dr. Gina Green, Jim Carr, uh, Lori herself, as well as other um, supports and lobbyists. We had um, gone to the BACB a year before that and learned about what worked and didn't work in New York, in North Carolina, for example. So 
having um, other people make mistakes before you is very helpful. Um, being the one to make those mistakes so other people can learn is sometimes uh, the challenge. You find yourself being that person too. Um, what I would say is you, you have to use what's out there. There's me, if I can help. There's other people like Kristen Coba burt Laura Bollinger, Molly Benson, Sarah Sato, Kathleen Penland, and others. Um, I really leaned in on, on Lori Unum, Dr. Gina Green, Dr. Eric Larson, uh, Dr. Jim Carr uh, in particular, as well as a few others. And I'm very grateful for a lot of the one-on-one -on -one attention they provided um, because I think now Lori has a book that you could, you know, you could purchase. Or I think Dan runs a, I know he runs a course through the University of West Florida where you can get information. So we're starting to have these tangible resources available. Um, and some of this is mentioned in certain publications as well in some journal articles. The, the main message I would say is don't try to do it alone. Sometimes I do think that I can take on and tackle the entire world. And um, I think that that's not reasonable and not sustainable. So I was mentioning our licensure. We passed in 2015. Hawaii was the first state to require the RBT credential. I don't think that that's necessarily the right step for every state at, at the same time. It's a definitely a timing and a location issue. We also did not carve out our public schools. Um, Dr. Gina Green said, Amanda Kelly, if you do not carve out these public schools, you're gonna be spending the rest of your career defending this licensure. And turns out she was 100% correct. Um, I appreciated her giving me that knowledge and being very clear and direct about it. I also, though, made the decision that it was 100% worth it. And again, that was a localized decision. The timing was as such. We don't have a lot of clinic options. Uh, space is an issue on an island, electricity. So again, different things that pertain to us. That law did pass uh, pretty quickly in 2015 with zero opposition. However, it was challenged in 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. So even though I'm here in Orlando, I was still testifying and submitting testimony in Hawaii. And I'm, I'm grateful to say that what happened this year was that our licensure was made permanent. Um, the sunset, it requires an auditor's report to determine whether or not the licensure is necessary. And you know, what comes with changing laws, a lot of uh, growth and growing pains. Also what the auditor reported was thousands thousands, maybe tens of thousands of children are accessing care. And we have over 500 individuals who have obtained those licenses. We also have over a thousand or 1200 registered behavior technicians. And I believe if it can be done on an island, it can be done anywhere. I think it leads in, Amanda, to the next question pretty well uh, from the audience. What's next in terms of your advocacy work? What are your what are current goals or even future goals at the state and federal level? Well, you also asked the question of where I see us headed and I'm glad that we got brought back to that centered on that discussion. Where do I see what's next? Um, we need to preserve these laws. We need to elevate the um, access, the, the level of service that people are receiving. Joe said very clearly and very accurately, all behavior analysts are not created the same. So for me, I'm very much interested in creating groups and providing support and a community that can, that can have a lot of disagreement, but, but should not be at odds with one another. We cannot truly um, 
you know, tackle all the problems that exist out there if we are spending our time uh, with chatter and noise and getting distracted. Um, I know right now so many people are craving being in person and having large conferences again. And the beauty that comes with that is being able to read people's um, you know, nonverbal cues, being able to say, hey, let's grab that beer. Um, we can't really do that as easily on a remote level. What do I think needs to happen next? Um, Medicaid is not effectively providing these services despite the federal CMS memo in 2014. In Hawaii, we had a, a lawsuit and that was found in favor of the families. Medicaid does need to provide that service. We are having pretty good fidelity in the state of Hawaii. Again, if it can be done on an island or an island chain, I think that should help encourage us to believe it's possible in other places. For me, the biggest barrier that I see, and I think this has to do where, where with my background, my history and where my eyes are opened is the role of the public schools um, public schools are where many of our children spend a large majority of their time if they don't have access to a clinic. Are they able to access the medical services during the day? Are the public schools the place to do that? Or when are they the place to do that? You know, there's a lot of logistics to figure out who should provide what, who should pay for it, what should it look like? The bottom line is we are never going to help individuals, especially with autism, achieve any of the optimal outcomes that we talk about or that have been told to us that we read about in the research if they cannot access the services. Because what's really important to think about is in these research studies, as we're looking at these things, it doesn't say with intermittent access, with six month reauthorizations, uh, doesn't say with a brand new technician, um, with some additional wait until we get credentialing, right? Like there are new barriers that we are having to navigate through. I'm very proud of the work that uh, the Council of Autism Service Providers um, CAST is doing um, cumulatively. There's a lot of special interest groups. You mentioned the one that we're chairing, but there's also TRICARE. There's also ones looking at um, all sorts of different topics, you know, ethics and going really much more of a deep dive into it. And I think what our field needs and what I'm so encouraged to see is these this gathering of people who, who might have been at opposite ends of a room at a, at a conference at once upon a time, finding that, you know what, it feels like maybe we're far apart from one another, but we're not. We're actually in one large room and we are part of this group and we need to be figuring out how to work together. I, I also truly wanna you know, speak to all the new analysts or the people who are passionate about pursuing becoming a behavior analyst um, you know, there's, there's so much amazing, powerful um, energy and excitement and potential that can come with the science. And I think that we do need to stay humble and grounded and make sure that we are, um, that we're, that we get in and that we provide the support that's needed. And then we get out and we move on to helping the next person who's asked for our support. So we need to, um, create communities when we're not seeing that they exist. I know by having a lot of online programs, which is not the only variable, and I'm not saying that that is a problem. What I'm suggesting is that we don't necessarily have the same cohort experience. Where when I went through my program, even though different people could have been in the same class, there was only two or three places to work in Massachusetts. So even if you were had people from different a different you know, agency, you, you still knew half the people in the class or you had the, the access to these people on a daily basis. So for people who do not have that or who are going through their work experience and don't have what they feel is like a cohort, create one for yourself, you know, because there's so much to be said in having colleagues and having really 
um, incredible and powerful and passionate people sitting with you at the table. When I ask people who are some of their strongest mentors or who they go to when they have a problem, it's incredible how many people talk about going to a colleague versus going to uh, you know, perhaps a, a professor, if you will. So there are these relationships that I think um, are pivotal for us having lifelong support as we continue on our path in behavior analysis. Yeah, once again, I think that's that's a brilliant answer to the question. I think, you know, I don't know how you feel. I think uh, the other areas that we need to really start going is better defining quality behavior intervention and meaningful applied functional outcomes. I think, you know, we need, there's not all ABAs alike, not all behavior analysts are alike, and we really want to ensure that the consumers of our science are getting quality behavior intervention. I know Amanda, you and I are kind of working on some of those parameters. I know, as you said, CASP is, has special interest groups on that. I think the Autism SIG at, from ABAI is uh, helping create some of those uh, guidelines as well. Um, because at the end of the day, we wanna make sure we're making a meaningful difference to our consumers. And for me, I think you've made a meaningful difference to so many families, uh, either directly, indirectly, uh, whether you get credit for some of it or, or people don't even know you did it. So I just wanna thank you for the work you've done over the time. And I wanna thank you uh, for being uh, such a great colleague. And I wanna thank you for coming on uh, Rants with Justin and Joe. Well, I hope I, I ranted enough because certainly it's a definitely, it's a passion place for me. Um, I have been thinking about behavior analysis and um, a lot and about why I'm, I'm so much focused on disseminating and advocating. And the reason is because I truly believe it can make the world a better place. It has made my life a better place. Um, I had the fortune of spending six months with my parents, living in their home, having different political views during the election, having difficult conversations in safe spaces. And also they, they gave me some feedback. They're like, Amanda, right now um, I hadn't yet started my position. And they're like, you are constantly working. Like, why are you doing this? And I was like, because it brings me so much joy. And um, when people say that their lives have been changed for the better, I couldn't think of a better reinforcer. And um, at the end of the six months, my dad said to me, Amanda, I don't know if you'll ever work a day in your life, um, despite how much you're doing all these different tasks. So, so I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my experiences and for the invite to come on Rants with Justin and Joe. Well, I also I want to second what Justin said, and I appreciate that you're doing the work. I can only imagine the mountains of work that you have in the various corners of wherever you're dwelling. Uh, it is that time, though, I want to throw out for the people that are interested in getting CEUs for this RAMS. Uh, remember, you can purchase and download your certificate at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Uh, today's closing word is policy. Again, that's policy. Remember to um, subscribe to our rants uh, uh, so you can listen to all of it. And if you want, please sign up for the APFC library. I uh, would we'll come back in two weeks for the last rants of the season. And I think we'll take like three weeks off, like a little summer break, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and we're having uh, Christine Milne, uh, John Rafus, and Jeremy Leap, all very, very talented uh, behavior analyst clinicians coming to talk about curriculum. 
and curriculum development. It was so well uh, attended and we got such positive feedback from last uh, season that we brought them back. So in two weeks, we will have Jeremy, uh, John and Christine. So with that, have a great day. Thank you for listening and goodbye from Rants with Justin and Joe.